Let's open our Bibles to Matthew 22 this morning. Let the Word do the work. That's a, kind of a heart theme I have going into a text like this. This is exactly what Jesus is doing, is he's wanting the Word to open the eyes of the Pharisees who are hearing from Jesus right before he's transitioning into a very, very severe um, woe judgment theme in chapter 23. He's going to pronounce seven damning judgments on the Pharisees. But right up to that point, he's trying to win them. He's trying to win them with the word of God. And that's what this bigger section, verses 34 to 46, is all about. We learned last time in verse 34 that a Fer- the Pharisees were gathering together, conspiring to get Jesus. It's Wednesday, the week of Passover. He's going to the cross on Friday. He's at the temple steps. He'd overturned the temple system and uh, made a kind of a, an open statement, upturning tables, saying you're, you're all sideways and backwards and even extorting people through the religious Passover And then these different questioning groups had come to uh, take Jesus down and disqualify him as Messiah. And it says that the Sadducees had been silenced and so the Pharisees are gathering together. And one of them, verse 35, a lawyer shows up with this question, what's the greatest commandment, the great commandment of the law? What's the one thing the whole thing is all about? And Jesus makes it about heart change. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. All your soul and all your mind, just give God everything. Give him your whole heart. That's that's the point, which is from Deuteronomy 6. That's the point. And if you do, that transformation will bleed out into loving your neighbors yourself. You'll love other people. Your whole life will be changed both vertically and then horizontally if you'll do this. Well, that's the beginning of Jesus' evangelism ministry, because he's answering that way. But then he takes over in verse 44 and opens up an evangelistic Bible study out of Psalm 110. But let me just read this section, because he's trying to win the Pharisees with an evangelistic Bible study. Listen as I read. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? Saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If David calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. (laughs) The, the ending, Jesus is sort of turning off the spigot. Uh, how many questions were asked of Jesus? Well, quite a few. I, just in the chapters preceding, Jesus on, um, was entering into the kind of temple area, coming under the scrutiny of several battalions that came to get him. Um, Matthew 21, verse 23, you have the t- at the temple where he entered, the chief priest and the elders and the people came and they're asking, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Who do you think you are? We know the crowds um, sort, of, sort of threw out their political popular vote on Jesus. You know, you're the Messiah. You know, blessed are you who comes in the name of the Lord. They're worshiping this Messiah that they want to be their governmental overthrow. They want him to be uh, the new Caesar. 
the Jewish Caesar for us, take on this mission. And that was, uh, that was one thing that the, you know, the different teachers are trying to put down. They're trying to say, look, you're not that. You're not going to be this kind of ruler. The popular vote says you are, but what authority? We're going to now challenge you and put you on the spot and see where you land in terms of where you're coming from. In Matthew 22, verse 15 and 16, you have the Pharisees showing up. They're plotting to entangle him in his words. Verse 16, you have Herodians, who are basically the emissaries for Rome. And this sort of hybrid representation of the religious group and a Roman group. And they're saying, okay, well, who do you pay taxes to, Caesar or God? And, you know, he thwarted them. And then ultimately the Sadducees came and they said, in essence, do you really believe in the resurrection? Can that be a real thing if people are married several times? Who are they married to physically in, in the future? And Jesus basically understood their question and their angle and answered it in terms of what true resurrection means. And then now in verse 41, we have the Pharisees are gathered. And what Jesus does here is he turns the tables on them. He moves from playing defense to offense. He's been answering questions. Now it's time for him to ask the questions. And again, it's a evangelistic Bible study. I've titled this Becoming a Good Pharisee because he's just trying to win Pharisees. And winning a Pharisee to Christ means that your heart changes. That's what it means to be good, not a do-gooder, but you actually are right with God. And so they're trying to disqualify him and discredit him. Jesus is gaining ground, but as he's gaining ground, really his mission is the same. He's not trying to win the popular vote. He's not trying to be crowned king. He's coming as a sacrificial lamb and savior, but he wants to take people's hearts with him. So many people are concerned about our country today and about the kind of country that we're going to leave behind us for our kids and grandkids and great-grandkids. But really, our mindset shouldn't be about leaving them here at all. Our mindset set should be about taking them with us one day. Where we go, we want them to follow us. We're going to heaven. We want them to follow us to heaven, no matter what happens in the topsy-turvy world that we leave behind us. No matter how good we do within our 25 years left here on earth, that's no sort of guarantee that things are going to politically go weird three years later. So these are temporal goals that we get embroiled in compared to Jesus's goals, which are, let's challenge the heart and see if you can see into heaven through the portal of scripture and see God and his son and his son at the right hand of the father. And and if you can see that in scripture, Jesus is saying, what are you going to do with me? Because I'm that person. I'm right here. I'm standing in front of you. And will you believe in the true Christ? He uses questions that kind of as a composite become almost a riddle. He's taking them through a Bible study and being a provocateur to get them to think and mull over what the meaning is of what Scripture says compared to what they're thinking about Jesus. They're thinking about Jesus as he's, you know, um, he's a Jew. He's, he's perhaps in, in keeping with the son of David, but, you know, in the right lineage, but, do, but the question Jesus is asking is, do you want the son of David who is also the son of God? Do you want the whole Jesus, all of who scripture says Jesus is? A lot of people want a half Jesus and a half religion, but they are missing all of heaven by worshiping half of who Jesus is. 
you worship half of who Jesus is, you're still headed for a whole hell. Half Messiah equals whole hell. Now, William Barclay said they wanted um, a Messiah who might be enough to finish the conquest David started to shatter Israel's enemies and to lead people to the conquest of all the nations. But is this really enough? A lot of people want a national prince. They want a national savior. I mean, Jesus had upset the, the establishment. He was anti-establishment. He was, a, he was a temple radical. He overturned the racketeering system. And they're like, man, we want to vote for this new leader. But Jesus is taking it far deeper than that to the heart. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, the natural man doesn't understand the things of the spirit of God. So the issue is, will someone come out of their natural mindedness and enter into spiritual mindedness and really see Jesus for who he is and what he means? It's moving from the temporal to the eternal, from a military leader, a national leader, a political leader, a half-messiah to the true son of David who is the son of God. The one being tested is now the tester in this passage. It's evangelism. It's holding up the word of God like a mirror and saying, do you see who Jesus is? And do you see yourself in light of who he truly is? That's the question. Christ is offering the gospel to the Pharisees by asking questions. These are conversion questions. And the first one was verses 34 to 40, which was being asked of him. And he answered it in terms of you give your whole heart to Christ. And now he's asking the questions in verses 41 to 46. And there's three of them. There's more than three, but really three basic themes. Three questions are asked. The first is a remedial question in verse 41. Um, 42, I should say, it says, what do you think about the Christ? I mean, this is the question of questions. There's no higher or deeper question you can really ask someone. You say, how do I win somebody to Christ? How do I start a conversation about Jesus? How are you going to do that? Well, one clear way to do it is the way Jesus did it. What do you think about Jesus? That's what he was doing. What do you think of the Christ? Now, he was talking to the Ivy League Bible scholars, and so they're thinking you know, through their answers from Scripture intellectually, but he's just asking them, what do you think of Jesus? What do you think of the Messiah? And he's, you know, what do you think of me is what he's saying, but really propositionally, what do you think of Christ? Where they go with that tells him everything he needs to know about their spiritual state. This is less about them learning about him and more him learning about them. This is how you evangelize. This is how you lead people to Christ. It's a remedial question, which can be defined as a remedy question or a curative question. It's a basic question where he's the the teacher asking the high scholars, really, what is one plus one equal? (laughs) That's what he's saying. What do you, you know, who's... Whose son is he? That's the most basic kindergarten question you could ask these Pharisees. Whose son is he? And they said, the son of David. We know that. David was the king and he's the front runner of the king of kings. He's going to come from this irrefutable lineage, the line of David. 2 Samuel 7, Isaiah 9, 7, Jeremiah 23. It talks about 
the, you know, the offspring being established under David, 2 Samuel, Isaiah 9, 7. You've heard this verse on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. Jeremiah 23, 5. I'll raise up for you, a, David, a righteous branch. So this question is theological. It's very logical. It was kind of demeaning to, you know, to these people. They'd be offended. But, you know, they, they were engaged in what was happening. Christ would have been immediately dismissed by the Pharisees if he himself wasn't from the line of David. They knew he was saying that he was Messiah. Everybody else said he was Messiah. So if, if there was any contamination in the line of Mary, his mother, or Joseph in terms of, as the adoptive father, in terms of his lineage, he would have been disqualified. So he was utterly genealogically and paternally and ethnically qualified to be Messiah. And they're saying it's the son of David. Are you saying you're the son of David? That's, that's kind of the, the, the level that they're all talking on at this point. Are you saying that you're the great, 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 great grandson of David, and so you're Messiah? Because Jesus is saying, what do you think about the Christ? Do you know whose son he is? And they said, son of David. So then Jesus shifts gears immediately and begins to take things into a spiritual level with a reasonable question. He's moving from a, a remedial question, a basic question, to now get your thinking caps on, Pharisees. He's kind of got them back on the ropes. I want you to begin to logically put this together with, if you're saying that he's the son of David, then let's go to David in Psalm 110 and hear about how he talked about the Messiah and see if that jives with your thinking in terms of the Messiah. You're tracking so far, that's what he's doing. He's going to David's words. You're connecting Messiah with David. You're saying he's the son. And so what does David do with Messiah? Are you willing and able to think about David in the way that, I mean, the, way, the Messiah in the way Jesus talked about him? In verse 43, it says, he said to, to them, how is it then that David in the spirit calls him Lord? You know, it's important as we understand the Messiah and, and really embracing him for all of who he is, that we're the example of doing that as the church. That's who you are. Your role is to not just don't be a Pharisee, <laughs> but to be a true follower of Jesus who embraces Jesus as Lord, as Lord. And David did this. He was in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Hebrew word, the, the, the New Testament Greek word here is pneuma, or wind, or spirit. The second person of the Trinity is, is pictured here by that word. He um, inspired all of Scripture. In the Old Testament, prophets um, had the Spirit come upon them, and then they would speak for God. And that's what David is um, shown to be doing here. He's like an inspired writer of Scripture. He wrote the Psalms, many of them. And he's, he's written this down, but he's also, as a prophet, having the Holy Spirit, which is called Ruach, the Ruach came upon him, and he spoke in the Spirit these words. And the idea is that he's seeing up into heaven, 
a window and a picture in terms of how the father is relating to the son and they're, you know, they're equal in essence as they are the Trinity and the Holy Spirit is giving him this witness and this vision. There's this inner Trinitarian dynamic where it's like a portal of heaven is opened up and David is able to relate and say, how is it my Lord is being spoken to by the Father? It's, it's an incredible vision that David is relating here. A lot of people will not understand that Jesus is fully God and they, they will get sort of a, a half measure, but this is a whole measure of who Jesus is. He's not just the son of David. He is the son of God, where it says in verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. The Lord said to my Lord. So David is quoted as saying, um, that Yahweh, the Lord, um, the God, the Father, the self-existent I am God, said to my Lord, who is David's Messiah, so he's reacting to David's Messiah, Yahweh is talking to my Lord, in the Hebrew that's Adonai, the dominant sovereign one. How is it that David is seeing that Yahweh is talking to another being who is Adonai and he sits at the right hand of the Father. How, how do these things connect? If you're only seeing the Messiah as a physical, ethnic, Jewish son who's a prince who fulfills this Davidic line who will overthrow Caesar, if you're only seeing things on that level, then how is it that David sees this encounter between the father and the son where the, where the father is inviting the son to sit at his right hand, which means co-equal power status, meaning the son is also God. How is that? How then is he David's son? That's what he's asking. Reason through this with me. Now, Psalm 110 is an interesting text. It uh, basically became kind of put to the side in Jewish tradition because it's too clearly messianic. It's too clearly talk, too much talking about Jesus. Just like Isaiah 53, by his stripes we are healed. Um, that's a gospel chapter in the Old Testament that was hardly ever read in um, the rabbi rabbinic tradition or, or temple use. Psalm 110 was also, verse 1, was kind of X'd out of the um, Jewish liturgy. But in the New Testament, it was quoted 30 times, either directly or indirectly. It's replete through the New Testament because it is a fulfillment of who Jesus really is. How is it the Lord Yahweh said to my Adonai, my master, how is it that there is God the Father and God the Son, and he's saying, sit in my right hand. And sit in a way that you're my right hand where all my enemies are going to be dominated under your feet. That's who the Messiah is. You want a political savior who's just going to dominate Rome, but this is an indomitable savior who is bigger than your vision is of Jesus. Jesus is way bigger than just a political prince. This is son of God. You know, today in society, there are a lot of people in coalitions who are gathering um, together in the name of morality, Judeo-Christian morality, where they're viewing the Bible as, you know, the baseline ethic 
to make the country right again. And I'm for a lot of that, and I'm for a lot of the um, sort of political movements that are that are um, identifying, you know, the woke culture and some of the you know, just the spiraling dynamics that are that are decaying our country. But we need to understand that if people believe that they're they're combining their efforts in the name of God, and that is saving them, that that's a version of their own personal salvation, that that's helping them um, in terms of their pursuit of God, that is a different category. It's not the same thing. Um, to, to blur the lines there can be very difficult. Al Mohler did some of this, and I respect him greatly, but when American society is spiraling apart, he you know, at a certain point was aligning even with the Mormons and trying to gather in coalition with them. And he said, we may not go to heaven together, but we certainly might go to jail together, Um, which is a curious, you know, thought. And it's interesting to combine forces with people and try to try to um, do do some things in our country, which are good. But if uh, if you think about that a little bit more deeply, heaven and hell is really the deepest Goal. That's the dividing line between um, sort of your whole eternity and your whole existence. No matter what you do here on earth, it's temporal. Life is a vapor. It's here for a little while and vanishes away. We need to be clear on the gospel. If you get God half right, like a Mormon who might know some things about God, might say some decent things about the Lord, might act moral, but if you get God half right, or a good-hearted Jew, and I'm praying for the Jews, I'm praying for the Israelites right now who are in a war-torn environment, and I want them to be saved and to truly know the Messiah, but if you only know half about God, then there's a whole hell that's waiting for you in the life to come. You got to get Jesus all the way right to have the true savior, not half right, not a half right Bible. Got to get all of God right. That's where Jesus is leading these Pharisees to think. He wants them to mull over Psalm 110. Think about it. Think about it. Whose son is he? Well, he's David's son. Well, what did David say about the Messiah? That's what he's doing. (laughs) How did David describe the Messiah? What, What kind of Messiah do you really want? Verse 45, this is the rhetorical question. This is where he he lands kind of his his plane here. He says, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Now, this isn't Jesus just mic dropping here or dunking the basketball. (laughs) He's not spiking the football and saying, there, I won. You don't have the right idea with Messiah, so I'm done with you. He's really trying to get them to think through the fact that he is David's son. He he is still David's son, but he's also God, very God, son of God. Remember when Jesus was confronted by the Pharisees in John 8, and they they were threatening to kill him at the end of the Feast of Tabernacles. He's right in the middle of ministry, and Jesus had said, if you know the truth, the truth will make you free. And that offended the Pharisees. They're like, we're sons of Abraham. Abraham's our father. He's our dad. We don't need to be free from anything. Why are you calling us a slave? And he said, no, your father is the devil. In other words, you're enslaved to him and you're enslaved to sin. And then as he's discussing things and he's talking about Abraham, um, Jesus said, 
before Abraham was, I am. And he just kind of brings everything to a head to say, are you, do you know who you're dealing with? Do you know that you're talking about the I am, that I am the, the eternal God that's standing in front of you? Do you see me for who I really am? This is why David said in Psalm 110 that Jesus sits at the right hand until I put your enemies at your feet. This is the indomitable picture of of Jesus as God. The word Yahweh means I am. That's the title that was used of God the Father in this context. The title that's used of the Son in this context is Adonai, which means sovereign. But these titles are interchangeable between the Father and the Son. And I think that's important to understand. In Psalm 8, verse 9, um, the writer says, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is O Yahweh, our Adonai. It's speaking of one member of the Trinity, probably the Father at this point. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Interchangeable names for God being divine. And Jesus is divinely God. Isaiah 9, 6, he's a wonderful counselor. Mighty God. He's even called everlasting father and prince of peace here. It's not to confuse us that the son is the father, but it just, it's a, it's a fatherly rule. Christ is the reigning king of kings and Lord of lords. He is all of this. First Corinthians 15, 27 and 28 describes in the end when all of creation is wrapping up and heaven is being put into place. Um, for you know the new heavens and the new earth, it says, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. This is God the Father putting everything in dominion under the Son's feet. If Jesus wasn't um, co-equal in essence and, and power and being fully God, then it would be blasphemy for the Father to put everything under the Son's feet. But then there's a sort of this reversal where the Son is then paying homage to the Father, and it's beautifully written. Says, but when it says all things are put under put in subjection, it's plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him. That the Father, or that God may be all in all. This is the Father and the Son putting things in subjection under each other's feet. It's a picture of glory in the future. Well, back to this final rhetorical question. This is kind of the question of questions. What do you think about Christ? If then the son calls him Lord, how is he his son? I mean, it kind of comes back to that first question that I just said. What do you think about Christ? And then verse 45 sandwiches this paragraph. David calls, if then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? I mean, the naturally minded person would say, well, he can't be. You can't have David be a son and David be talking about somebody in heaven that predates him. You can't, you can't have it both ways. But if you're spiritually minded, you connect the dots and you go, no, the eternal son is also the one who would be born in the city of David. And physically, he is the in the line of David, the physical son of David, and he's also the eternal son, this is the Messiah. 
Jesus here is leaving the people with no place to go. He wants them to see that they have nowhere to go but to yield to truth and to yield to Christ. What did they do? Had the lights been turned on, they would have bravely said, you are the Christ, but it says no one was able to answer him a word. They were just shut up at this point. It's a sober statement. It's kind of a somber atmosphere. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. So all of the battalions of questioners were stopped. Everything was stopped in this moment. They were unable to see Christ as son of David and son of God at the same time. So did Jesus fail in his evangelism? Well, if people only believe in half of Jesus and they're wholly lost, did he not teach his evangelistic Bible study well enough? I don't think any of that's true. Maybe this will illustrate kind of the moment in a modern way. In Washington, D.C., at a metro station on a cold January morning in 07, a man with a violin played six Bach pieces for 45 minutes. During that time, people went through the station, most on the way, their way to work. After three minutes, a middle-aged man noticed a musician playing. He slowed his pace and stopped for a few seconds and hurried to meet his schedule. Four minutes later, a violin, the violinist received his first dollar. A woman threw money in the hat and without stopping continued to walk. Ten minutes uh, later, a three-year-old boy stopped and his mother tugged him along hurriedly. The kid stopped to look at the violinist again and again. But the mother pushed hard and the child continued to walk, turning. The child was turning um, his head the whole time. This action repeated by several other children, but every parent, without exception, forced their children to move on quickly. At 45 minutes, the musician played continuously and only six people stopped and listened for a short while. About tw- uh, 20 people gave money but continued to walk at their normal pace. The man collected $32 total. After an hour, he finished playing and silence took over and no one noticed and no one applauded and there was no recognition at all. Um, This was a social experiment that was conducted. You can actually watch it on um, time-lapse photography on YouTube um, to kind of get the picture of what I'm talking about. But the violinist was um, not just a nobody, he was actually a somebody. The, nobody knew it, but he was, uh, this was Joshua Bell, one of the greatest musicians in the world, playing some of the finest music ever written. With a violin worth $3.5 million, a Gibson X Huberman Stradivarius, built in 1713. Two days before, Bell had sold out a theater in Boston, which seated... Um, uh, seats cost on average $100 um, per seat to listen to him play the same music. Bell was incognito here, organized by this um, Washington Post um, reporter, Gene um, Weingarten. He actually got a Pulitzer pr- Prize for this the next year. And it was him answering a, a question. And it's in a commonplace environment where it's in an, at an inappropriate hour, do we perceive beauty? where things are out of context? Do we recognize talent in an unexpected context? Or where do we find Christ here? 
Um, the expectation for the people is that Christ would be putting his armor on, loading in his chariot, gathering his armies, ready to overthrow, ready to take back the town, um, ready to plant a flag back in Jerusalem. The Herodians would be kicked out. Um, the, the Pharisees would be sublimated. The Sanhedrin would be in bowed submission to the new ruler. The hoi polloi would have won. Instead, you have Jesus, who is Messiah, who's there perfectly timed at Passover. All the Paschal lambs are being offered. Jesus is the predicted lamb of lamb, king of kings, who would die on the cross as son of David and son of God, the perfect sin bearer. Perfectly timed to be believed in in that moment. And yet, all the people, all the questioners, all the hoi polloi, all the great throng. There was a great throng of people, according to Mark's account. There were onlookers watching this whole event in the court of Gentiles. All of them are sort of just moving on, like at the D.C. terminal. Just like, you know, we just can't quite get it. But is that the end of the story? We know Joseph of Arimathea believed he was a Pharisee. Nicodemus believed he was a Pharisee. The Apostle Paul would believe he was a Pharisee. Were there any other Pharisees who believed? Was this just a failed mission? I discovered that there were a few other Pharisees that believed. Acts 15 records the story of the Jerusalem Council. In the early missions movement, you have Paul and Barnabas who were launched out of Jerusalem. They went in the Mediterranean Sea and won a bunch of Gentiles to Christ Gentiles in mass had not ever been one to Christ, at least outside of um, those at Pentecost. You have Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. But then the outermost parts began to be reached and you had churches being born. And there was controversy because of that because Gentiles were being born again, but they weren't adhering to some of the civil and ceremonial laws of the Old Testament. And they weren't um, in, in manner of custom or even tradition or civil law keeping. They weren't eating the right foods uh, that Jews would say, you only eat this, but you don't eat that. Um, they were refusing circumcision. And so Paul and Barnabas were coming back and they're reporting um, back through Antioch. And down into Jerusalem that uh, Gentiles had been born again. It says in verse 3, um, so being sent on their way, this is from Antioch down to Jerusalem. They pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. It says when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles. And it says um, when they... The elders were there too, and they declared all of what God had done with them. But then in verse 5, listen to this. It says, But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Usually that's a very negative phrase in the story. You're like, Well, they're from the group of the Pharisees. They're the believing Pharisees. And they're like, oh, well, you know, we need you to adhere to some laws here to make this right. Well, first of all, let's just work backwards. Uh, the Pharisees, um, the Pharisee believers are just probably either still hung up on some legalism or they're trying to make a compromise to make it work for the new Gentile converts to fit in. So they're doing their best. But the point that I'm bringing up here, which isn't the main point, but it is a point nevertheless, is that you have, a Pharise- you have a group of Pharisees who were known as the believers. Some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees. 
one theologian I studied talked about how the Pharisees kind of after this moment, after chapter 23 and Jesus excoriates them with the seven woe judgments, they kind of go dark. You don't see them during the, the capture of Christ or the trial of Christ and then his crucifixion. But then afterwards, uh, they, are, they show back up for a little bit. But it could be that the Pharisees, some of them are mulling over this confrontation. They're thinking through this indictment that Jesus lays out. And some are one to Christ. And here they are in Jerusalem. These believers. It's a redemption story. Here's the final question. How do you know if you have Christ? All of Christ. Simply this. It's when all you have is Christ. That's when you know, when he's your everything, when all that he is, is given to all of who you are. All of who you are is in reverse, all for who he is. You love him with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, your whole self. When he is your sufficiency, and I'm not saying you don't love your family and love your friends and love things that are temporal and love causes and things that are here on earth. Those things are real and valid and powerful. But when you give all of you all that you are for all that he is, that's, that's the sufficiency of Christ. That's when he's your sufficiency. He's your everything. He's all you need. That's when you have him as your life and your salvation.